0: Welcome to the We Wonder Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Schlachter, and this is the podcast where we talk about science, technology, and its impact on society. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe to get new episode alerts. We're also on social media, on Twitter and Facebook. You can find us at We Wonder Podcast. You can also shoot us an email at feedback at wewonderpodcast.com. We'd love to hear what you think about the show. Also, feel free to send us topic requests, guest requests, or do you know somebody that should be on the show? Let us know. We look forward to it. And now, let's kick things off. Hey guys, welcome to episode number 10. Yeah, that's right. Milestone, episode number 10, season 2. Really glad this is still going on. Super excited to have you guys here. This is... A Smooth Criminal. Annie, are you okay? You guys know what I'm talking about? Michael Jackson. And uh, this album was released in 1987. That's why I've got the little brackets and uh, 0.87 confidence kind of playing on that. It's like an AI algorithm is saying that somebody is a smooth criminal with 87% confidence. So why are we talking about criminals and what makes them smooth? <laughs> uh, this episode is uh, is really incredible. We're going to talk with Renee Cummings, and she is an AI criminologist. That's right. It's kind of an incredible way to describe yourself. And what she is really saying is that uh, AI is being used in criminology from uh, police department use to sentencing to paroling. Um, honestly, I had no idea it was so extensively used at the moment until I started talking to her. Uh, So, really excited to get her on the show and and educate you guys on how it's being used. Um, And so we can all start thinking about how to make the world a better place with AI in criminology because it does make things better, but we got to do it right and uh, it carries some risk with it. So, with that, let's kick things off. Welcome everyone to the podcast. Renee, thank you for joining us on the show. Really excited to have you here today and looking forward to the discussion.
1: And certainly, Jason, it's quite a pleasure and certainly an honor to be a part of this production.
0: Yeah, awesome. I really appreciate it. Um, and, you know, what caught me about, you know, you was was how you referred to yourself, like calling yourself an, an AI criminologist. I just, I saw it and I was like, wow, that's fascinating. Like, I've never seen that that term before. And even when I Googled for it, you know, you own that. Like, that's, <laughs> like, that you're the person that comes up when you search for that term. Um, so really curious, like, you know, how did you get there? What, what brought you to, to this title and, and, and sort of the space that you're in right now?
1: Uh, certainly. And yeah, definitely, I, I would say I own it because I think as a criminologist, I was looking for the next step. You know, what's the next uh, avenue? Where do we go again? And what I was seeing is I was seeing that artificial intelligence algorithms were playing a very strategic role in the future of of criminal justice. And what I was also seeing is much of the work that we were doing as criminologists actually uh, became part of that whole sphere of urban technology. And many of the things that were happening where AI was fusing with criminology were particularly in areas such as predictive analytics, advanced analytics, uh, digital profiling, uh, looking at predictive policing and precision policing, engaging concepts and, 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 and approaches such as our uh, facial recognition. But also we were seeing what was happening in the courts with these algorithms and these risk assessments and arraignment by algorithms and algorithms sort of redefining the ways in which criminal justice was being administered. And I said, you know, there has to be a, a closer relationship between artificial intelligence and criminology. And I decided just to step into that space.
0: And, and tell us about your background in general. Like you started off in, um, in criminology and I think a lot of people, including myself, really don't know what even criminology is, even without the the AI modifier, right? Um, so maybe a little bit about, you know, what does a criminologist do? You know, what's your background like? So we can kind of understand, you know, even without the AI part, what this means.
1: Well, certainly. So as a criminologist, I focus on anything that deals with lawmaking, law-breaking and law-enforcing. So while I do a lot of policy, I also do a lot of real-time criminology because I'm also a criminal psychologist. So a criminal psychologist is that mixture of uh, criminology with investigative psychology and with forensic psychology. So much of my work has been within the realm of violence prevention and homicide reduction and crime scene investigation and criminal profiling. So that's where I've been probably for the last 12 years. But add to that my background in, in terrorism. Um, I specialize in uh, counterterrorism, uh, the psychodynamics of terrorism. And I think over the years, I've been able to mix all of that up and really do a lot of work internationally, helping uh, you know, organizations helping uh, agencies, law enforcement agencies, really bring a best practice approach to uh, crime prevention, uh, crime forecasting, homicide reduction, and violence prevention.
0: Wow. And what would like, when uh, you say crime forecasting, I, my mind goes to AI, of course, because that's my, my background. But, you know, crime forecasting, I imagine this existed before AI, right? This was done some other way. Like, um,
1: well, basically, it was done with, with the data. Data has always been uh, a critical aspect of criminal justice. It's been looking at that, using that more or less like an old-fashioned a uh, Polaroid to come up with a solutions-driven approach. What we call what we call evidence-based uh, uh, policing, data-driven uh, law enforcement. So the crime forecasting has always been there. What happened with machine learning and AI, it became much more sophisticated and much more uh, driven. And we were able just to drill down into uh, what we would call those uh, criminogenic spaces and and, uh, places uh, just more accurately. So I think AI just made us much better at what we were doing all these years.
0: So can we talk about some of the areas where AI is being applied? Because I, I know like it's being used for certain things like like um, parole decisions, um, maybe helping with sentencing. But um, I, I think there's probably such a broad space in which AI is being applied that like most people don't even know about. Right. And, and so can can you kind of tell us what what are the places where AI is currently being applied and, and what are the places where you know, it will be applied you know, in, the, in the near future?
1: All right. So certainly, I think uh, some of the broad areas would definitely be uh, safety, security, and uh, public safety. I think most people are very, incom- uh, very comfortable Sorry, uh, with the fact that uh, cybersecurity is an aspect of, of criminology. And I think we're all in that uh, uh, digital space, so we understand that. But some of the other areas, we spoke about crime forecasting, definitely crime prevention, what we would call predictive analytics. And um, this is what law enforcement uses to make decisions. Decisions as to where they're going to apply those resources, where they're going to put what we call cops and dots, where are the places they're going to put their police officers based on the uh, data. Of course, you're going to look at things like DNA analysis, which is now being driven like healthcare uh, with AI. There's something called e-incarceration. So many of the the tools that are being designed right now are using a digital approach to incarceration. There are things like emotion detection, uh, facial recognition, gunshot detection, lie detection. Of course, we know that the public safety video and that whole area of image analysis is really big right now as within the context of facial recognition. The risk assessments, I think that's the one uh, most people are aware of because that's the one that's making uh, the decision-making in the courts. So you're looking at reoffending, sentencing, uh, parole decision, of course, statement analysis, which has been uh, really uh, making waves when it comes to really understanding things like intimate partner violence and domestic violence. And of course, uh, within the intersection of mental health and criminal justice a lot of work happening there as well and where are the good things and these are all areas where we're seeing uh, particularly things uh i know columbia university has been sort of leading the way when uh they're looking at things like internet banging so you know gang banging has now moved on the internet and they're using algorithms to make these uh, predictive decisions where mass violence may Uh, happen and how we could make uh, those interventions. But where there is the the promise, there's always the peril. And I think the peril is when we start to look at things like digital bias, digital profiling, digital discrimination, uh, digital victimization. And then we have disinformation and deep fakes and that's a big one because uh criminal justice and national security are the two top areas where deep fakes could really really have a uh, detrimental uh effects
0: yeah the deep fake stuff in particular is 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 incredibly um fascinating and kind of concerning and um i, I had a conversation recently with somebody um who's in the field of ai and and, and their take on it was you know the as the deep fake technology gets better, um, even if it's sort of hard for a, a person to tell the difference between something that's real and, and, and created, deep fake will, will create, right? Like a a person saying or doing something that never happened in reality, um, and it can do that using AI. Um, but it, you know, their take on it was that it, you know the AI will still be able to detect these things for the foreseeable future, and I I, I tend to agree with that. That the there's still this risk that the layperson can't, right? Um, or, or that they, or that they trust that the AI has, and it hasn't, right? There's still, I think, that's still sort of a big, big area. Um, and when you talk about, um, so of course, I did some research to court <laughs> ahead of this call to, like, you know, brush up on, on what's out there. And um, and one of the things I came across was um, that that Pennsylvania is using software for their their um, parole decisions, um, like you talked about risk assessments. Um, and, and they're using this software to, to help them make decisions around whether people should get, you know, paroled or not. And they found that in using this software, they made more accurate decisions, um, in, in, in giving people parole or letting them out early. And, um, and what fascinated me was they measured it by rearrests. Um, and it was, it's sort of like this, this idea that that becomes the, the proxy of success. Right. Um, and so I, I was really fascinated by that, and they also the, the same person who, who was looking at that you know talked about a bunch of other stuff that I going to get into later in the, in the call about sort of bias and fairness and accuracy. but um, just really interesting really interesting to me to see that this stuff is already out there, already being used. I had, I had thought that a lot of this was still kind of rolling out and very new, and I didn't realize that that it's already there for some places, and decisions are already being made. Um, And then you kind of have to wonder, like, what companies are providing these technologies? Like, maybe you could tell us sort of, like, where does this tech come from? What are the regulations that exist right now?
1: Um, Well, really, the thing is that we we all know when it comes to innovation, innovation is usually uh, sometimes way ahead of uh, ethics and uh, uh, justice-oriented design, <laughs> sometimes, right? Sometimes, <laughs> <laughs> right? so we know that. And we know what we need to do is we really need to integrate ethics into design. I think one of the things that I've always said is that criminal justice really needs to be the conscience of artificial intelligence because that's where some of the toughest decisions are made and decisions that oftentimes could be our life and death. I think the uh, challenge with the criminal justice system right now is many of these risk assessment tools are being designed by third-party vendors. And we know when it comes to third-party vendors, it's a question of intellectual uh, property, and it's a question of that black box, that uh, forever black box that we talk about when it comes to AI. And the question becomes, uh, how are we able to drill into that black box to find out how these decisions are made? So when it comes to the criminal justice system, I think there are some hard questions uh, that need to be made, some legitimate justifications for automated uh, decision making. And some of the things that we're trying to wake the system up to, because right now it's about expediency. You know, there are many cases in front of the criminal justice system, and the system itself wants to move, and they want, it wants to really make decisions. But where there is expediency, we've got to question whether or not there is equity, and we, we've got to look at that. And I think what we've been asking, or we've been asking these questions uh, really in a general sense, and we're trying to to bring them more into the criminal justice discussion is that, you know, are we satisfied with the level of interpretability? Are we satisfied with the level of, of transparency? Are we understanding the ramifications of these risk assessment tools that we're using? And we've got to ask ourselves we are allowing software, you know, A.I. to make uh, life altering uh, decisions. And we've got to also ask ourselves, can A.I. or can algorithms make better decisions, better better predictions when it comes to crime? Can predictive algorithms make more sophisticated decisions than humans? So what I've been saying is what we need is our collective intelligence. And we've got to use these tools in an augmented way, augmenting intelligence, instead of just depending on it by our, by themselves. Because yeah. I think we, what we forget is that humans create these algorithms, you know, algorithms are not creating themselves. So it always gets back to, to, to <laughs> that. It, it's real, right? We yeah. always get back to, to that space.
0: Well, and you're bringing up a really good point, which is like the human psychology of it, right? Like um, there is, there is a, a human psychology of how we, we trust and, and, and deal with machines. Like there was a recent study that came out of Oracle where they said that right. 65% of employees trust AI more than their manager. And, you know, that's, that's kind of like a, a like provocative wild statistic. And I, I'm not even sure how you, how we really should interpret that. Like it, it makes me question the methodology more than anything about like, is it because they, they dislike their manager or is it because when they think about using ai they they have a different expectation or a different need from the ai than they have from their manager or or, you know it just it just blew my mind though that that was even something that, that could be real and then they they broke it down by um by different countries as well and and even within um you know across different countries it was it was pretty wild so like in India, it was like 89% trusted AI. Right, I, I saw that, yeah. I know, in China, it was 88%. I don't know if they have like terrible managers or they just- Well, I was
1: thinking that most people may not <laughs> like their managers and they may not want a relationship with their managers or they may have a prior relationship that negatively impacted at uh, that survey, right? So maybe uh, maybe that's it.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, you could. it's, it's so hard to, to reverse engineer this, but what struck me was that there's, there's cultural differences. So India and China are in the the high eighties, but then uh, it goes through Singapore, Brazil, Japan, UAE, Australia, Australia, New Zealand. By the time you get to the U S you're at 57%. UK is up 54% and then France at 56. Um, So there's, there's definitely some cultural differences in how we, we deal with our, our algorithms and our AI Um, men uh, are 56% likely to 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 trust AI more than their managers, but only forty four percent of women, um, and then eighty two percent of people think that robots can do things better than their managers. So <laughs> it's it's very it's a very odd study to be honest. Like, but it,
1: is, but it was very interesting. I did read it. It was very entertaining. <laughs> some parts of it.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's intriguing and odd at the same time. But but I, I guess the relevance to, for me to what you're saying is that I think you know there's this need to study how we how we trust machines and. And how we, and, and I, you know, I have, I have, um I have a model three um Tesla, which is autonomous and, and it drives me to work on the highway every day. And a lot of people ask me like, do you trust it? And, and I do, but the thing is I learned over time what it does well and what it doesn't do well. And so Brian? that understanding has allowed me to give it, you know, extreme trust when I feel like it's appropriate and to not trust it at all when I feel like it's not appropriate um, because I've learned that. Over you know a couple of years of driving it, um, and I think it all goes to like the same stuff that you're talking about um, that you know if you if you've ever dealt with like a bad process in a business right where you're like bouncing around on the phone and never getting any answers like having algorithms doing that instead of people is is only gonna make it that much harder to get to the transparency and get to the answers if if that's not the goal from day one right
1: definitely
0: so yeah. Uh, very very on board with that very interesting um so I read something uh, which I would say is is controversial um but also really interesting um it's from this uh professor at, at University of Pennsylvania Richard right. Burke um I don't know if you if you scanned uh his article on
1: yeah I, yeah I knew it I was very uh, familiar with his work yeah
0: okay okay yeah, yeah. maybe you can I'm place... very
1: familiar with it yeah
0: so what struck me, and I, this is sort of obvious in retrospect, but what struck me was this idea that, you know, fairness is is a complex term, and it means different things to different people, and and it, and it's not universal. And in his studies, he divines six different kinds of fairness, and he says that some of these are at odds with each other. So even when we say that it should be fair when we use AI for, for parole decisions, um, you know, even saying that is, is sort of still very abstract and then having to choose the individual fairnesses becomes a trade-off game. And then what really struck me and, and that makes complete sense is that um, fairness can come at the cost. And I would say, I guess from his work, it often comes at the cost of accuracy. And he gave this example where he talked about, you know, legally protected groups of people. Um, if you If you attempt to know be fair to them in terms of not considering their legally protected status it's actually decreasing the accuracy of the algorithms um and and you're creating more false positives more more false negatives meaning um in the in the parole example you're you're releasing people who should not be released um based on on having you know the most accurate predictions and you're and you're holding people who who should have been let go and and that's and 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 any algorithm is always going to make mistakes in terms of accuracy. So you're you're always going to have a situation where, where some people get held when they should have been released and some people get released when they should have been held. But, but ignoring, you know, in in this case, it was gender. It was groups of men versus groups of women. And they found that when they, when they tried to make the algorithm fair by, by not making decisions based on, on, on sex or gender, um, it performed worse and it wasn't sort of just a, that we didn't build it as well but it was sort of like mathematically like foundationally the case that it would perform worse which makes sense to me as an as an ai you know practitioner it makes sense that that would be the case so then he argues you know this this trade-off of like you know to be fair to men and women you know we put society at greater risk and we we sort of so it's like this dichotomy of do you punish the individual or do you punish or do you do you damage the society? I, I'm curious. To, I know it's a little bit controversial to bring that up, but I'm curious to hear your thoughts on that and maybe if you, his work in general, since you know it.
1: Yeah, so I appreciate his research. And I think uh, he gives a very uh, mathematical interpretation of, of that. But uh, is it just math? You know, is it just math? And that, that's what we asked. How do you create a formula for fairness? I mean, when I think of fairness, yeah, I'm thinking it, it needs to be accurate you know, we need to be able to audit it, it's got to be ethical, there has to be some level of explanation, and that's the challenge in the criminal justice system. If you're using a a risk assessment tool based on an algorithm to make a decision on someone's life, are they or aren't they supposed to get an explanation? Because right now, because of that whole black black box issue, we're not providing those explanations. It's got to be responsible. Mm -hmm. It is uh uh-huh.
0: Yeah. So there's no requirement for an explanation currently. Like it's, it's uh, currently
1: that? it's not because what 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 do we say? You know, that's what the computer said. Uh, you <laughs> know, you know that's what we say. The, you know, the algorithm uh, said it. We didn't say it. It of feels like it some.
0: Be... It feels like some horrible dystopian future, right?
1: Well, it does feel like that. My thing is this: when we're looking at criminal the criminal justice system, we've got to look at the data, and if we're using data from a racially biased criminal justice system that has been historically biased, it will lead to measurable biases in both the risk scores and the outcome measures. And, and that's just that. What we're saying is that before we use that data, we need to clean it up. We need to ensure that those foundational, foundational issues right are dealt with. We need to look at that potential for bias. In training data and in the algorithm right. we must find reasonable ways to regulate the use, and we must be able to examine commercial software that's being deployed in the criminal justice system. Uh, we've got to do that because we're purchasing these things uh, these risk assessment tools uh, from outside vendors so while we have got and I think this is why I say it has got to be. Collective intelligence, it's got to be that combination of collective intelligence and augmented intelligence when we're doing these and we just can't leave the decision making up to the algorithms we just cannot do that, because database discrimination we know it it's real, and it's just not in criminal justice we see it in finance, we see it in education, we've seen it in housing, we've seen it in the ways in which, uh, you know. Our, many of our, our social media platforms work as well. And we both know that algorithms are only as good as the data they work with. And they inherit those prejudices of prior decision makers. And that's real.
0: Yeah. And especially, I, you know, when you're talking about, you know, just, you know, bias in the, in the system that's existed for years. I, you, I mean, you do have to wonder, you know, among the charges that you're training on, among the data that you're training on, how much of it is real, right? Like how much of it is, not exaggerated, how much of it is not made up. I I do think that's a, a really interesting. Like, I don't I don't know how you get around that. Like, it, how how do you how do you control for that? Like, practically speaking, are there are there? Well, I
1: think what what the de- debate is is that you've got to look at who's at the table when we're designing these algorithms, and this brings into that question of diversity, equity, and inclusion. Who's at the table when we're coming up with these uh, algorithms, right? Is it diverse? Is it only men? Is it a combination? Is, yeah. it, is it a mixed view? You know, is it just a uh, our, our, our data scientist? Who are the people, right, who are there in that space who are making the decision? And, and what level of consciousness are they coming with as well? Because we've, we've read the, the research, you know, there are the books that are out there. We've, we've heard the TED Talks of people speaking about this. And I think what happens is that we oftentimes pay just a lot of lip service to ethics and diversity and inclusion because it sounds good in the boardroom. It sounds good in the C-suite. It makes us, you know, look as though, you know, we're doing the right things. But are we really paying attention?
0: Yeah, I think I think absolutely. And I I think I think really this is going to be the year of ethics. Um, So you're you're amazingly positioned for 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 being a, a voice in that in that this time, I think like I think. Ethics has been, you know, boiling for the last couple of years. I, so a lot of my career was in the defense and intelligence um, oh. side of things. I spent most of my career working um, for DOD and, and intelligence interests. And so uh, you know, ethics was was in many ways always a part of that, right? Because it's very, it's very black and white. It's like, should we have a drone, you know, target people automatically? Or should we require that an operator controls it? Or should we... You know, should we decide that somebody is a risk in, I don't know, a country abroad because of something we've observed online, right? Like it was very like clear in that domain that ethics and guidelines were needed, even, even like, you know, several years ago. I think it's all kind of rolling over everywhere now at this point. Um, and um, so I, I had an interesting, in terms of having people at the table, um, it's definitely not the people that are getting arrested. <laughs> <laughs> that are at the table right those those are probably the last people there that, that are there um but i i had a really interesting conversation with um with somebody who is is involved in in exactly kind of what you're describing um so it was fabian rogers and i met him last month uh and and he was basically talking about how his landlord is putting facial recognition systems into his apartment building and they uh they don't want them there because they're rent controlled and and he feels like uh that that this is you know a way of tracking who's coming in and going into the building. And it feels like ultimately the motivation may be to evict the people who have been on rent control for a long period of time. And it was a really interesting conversation, and it was within a a workshop for um ethics and fairness in AI. Um and and a couple of things struck me. Like it struck me that um that a lot of this, I think, came down to what you're describing, which is having people at the table, having regulations in place. Um, and, and where things went kind of sideways was everyone, or I shouldn't say everyone, but many people in that, in that environment were very angry that facial recognition technology existed. <laughs> and it became a like, this technology is wrong. Amazon is a bad company. And it, and it surprised me because, um, you know, it, it, the technology isn't inherently wrong. It's really what you said about we need to be Deploying it, and designing it in the right way, um, and yeah, and this is kind well, of. Well, I
1: think when it comes to facial recognition, and I think maybe this is why uh, you know we can't control it in the private sector. What private companies do, they're doing, but definitely in a public space, I think we've been looking at that. San Francisco and uh, some other cities have been really on the fore of that. Many uh, of, of our policymakers are sort of calling for a moratorium on facial recognition because the research is there. People of color children and women and people who identify as women have a greater uh, misidentification risk than others. And and that's just there. And when it comes to the criminal justice system, what we're saying in a system that's already disproportionately, uh, when it comes disproportionate, when it comes to the arrest and incarceration of black and brown people, this is seen by many of them as an aggravating uh, factor. So I did follow that case with that uh, apartment complex in Brooklyn and, you know, congratulations to them, of course. And, and they were right. What you're really using the technology to do is to exclude, right, to evict, to remove people, to up the rent for certain apartments, to bring you know. So we've got to look at how are we using technology? Are we using technology to include? Or are we using it to exclude? Are we using it to empower? Are we using it to disempower? And we've got to to really look at that because it's real. And my thing is that AI, I mean, I I just love this space. I think AI (laughs) is probably the most exciting thing that we've had. But we've got to really ask ourselves, if we have the opportunity to use this technology, to use our imagination, to create the world that we want, why are we just bringing so many of these old discriminatory systems into this new space. So why are we using new technology to create old divisions? And I think we've got to answer that as technologists, as persons working in the AI space.
0: Absolutely, Renee. I this is exactly why I wanted to have you on the show. I think like this is this is a great conversation. And I, I honestly like hearing um Fabian Rogers talk, he's he's also very passionate and expresses himself very well about you know what's going on in it. And it, and it was it was really It was interesting to see you know the the people who are at the end of this right because i i think what you said in the beginning is true that that ai has the potential to to improve our criminal justice system there's a lot of evidence showing that that better decisions are being made when ai is brought to the table for you know policing for sentencing for paroling but but it also can go so wrong if it if we're not careful and I, i i think there's like we have in in our, in our, in our sort of like dystopian, you know, futures and movies, we have this sort of like fear of AI, but it's like this, this far off, like Terminator type fear. And, and that's not really, you know, what this is at all. This is really not even about AI in many ways, right? This is, this is a human, I think at this point, this is, this is a human situation, right? It's, 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 it's us creating things um, in algorithmic form, right? It's like creating a business process, but, but it's an algorithm.
1: Um, and, and definitely, and I think what happens is that so many of the AI stories that are appear in the media always have these robots in, in, the, in the visual, you know, it's the robotic hand touching. The
0: <laughs> they're horrible, head, you know? horrible it's, uh, that whole
1: ET, you know, sort of uh, vibe that's happening. And I think that's what intimidates people yeah. because the minute you start to speak about AI, people talk about the robots that are coming. And I'm saying to them, check your iPhone, you know, check what you like on Netflix, check what happens when you go on and you do some online shopping. And you know, before you know it, you know, your phone has all these photographs of things that you may like because you like that. So people are just waiting to see these robots come out of of nowhere and they're not realizing what's happening. And I think one of the things that I'm really um, committed to is that level of education. Because when I think about fairness, I think about access. And we've got to talk about access because access is critical uh, to technology. And we've got to look at things like AI policy, AI governance. Are we bringing everyone into this uh, space when it comes to co-designing? Because what we're doing is we're co-designing a future. But, but who has access to that? And we've got to look at the question of, of democracy and whether or not it's deliberative. And we've got to look at those intersections of innovation and, and, and ask ourselves, who's standing at the intersection? We've got to look at things like ethic, you know, ethics and the ethical landscape when it comes to digital leadership and who's going to be leading the world. You know, we have the, the you know, we have the, the global South versus the global North. So these are all things, but I think it's happening so quickly that that public discussion is not happening. And I think we've got to bring, because what we're seeing with AI, right? We're seeing that the racial, economic, gendered, and disability biases are still there. We're seeing some of those deeply ingrained cultural prejudices are still there. We're still seeing structural hierarchies in AI. We're still seeing data being used to oversample what we would call our high needs or underserved communities. And with policing, what we're seeing is that we're using AI to continually over-police certain communities. So what I'm saying is that it's all there. It's all there. Why are we... We should use AI to make us better. Yeah, this... not to make us worse. Absolutely,
0: absolutely. This over-policing too is really interesting, right? Because it, it, I, I think it, if the AI can, can predict where crime is likely to happen with probably high accuracy, but, but it, it almost makes this closed system assumption, right? Where, where it's independently just, just ass- assessing stuff. But if you go out and throw a bunch of police officers into a neighborhood, like even if crime occurs at the same rate as other neighborhoods crime will be caught at a higher rate right and it it just enforces that, yeah. that 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 data too i think it's we we had something similar when on the on the the military side where you know we had we had algorithms we we have algorithms in place as a country that anticipate where violence will occur in the world and we we characterize that kind of violence as you know uh, international um um like crisis or like um like violent protests and based on that our our state department or you know um other agencies can can position resources or 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 change policy or or like change diplomacy and i mean it's the same kind of thing right like if you if you go if the system predicts that there's going to be a violent uprising in turkey and then we position assets off the coast of turkey just in case i mean turkey's like why are these assets off our coast like you know, it, the people get emboldened by it. Like, it, it's not a closed system, I, I think. And then what
1: I would say, why don't we position some of those assets in our own communities? When we look at gun violence in the United States, when we look at mass shootings in our high schools, right? Are we paying attention to those things? So we, we have a great responsibility, um, you know, from a, a domestic perspective as well. But, you know, one of the things, there there was a study done and an app that was created. I may not have the exact name of it, but I think it's called the White Collar Crime Early Warning (laughs) System. And uh, what they did is they used that same predictive analytics that the police uh, love to use, but the police, again, using uh, their uh, precision policing in our underserved communities. And what they did is they had identified in Manhattan all the high-risk zones for incidents of financial crimes and they identified it and they assessed the risk of financial crimes at every city block to determine the nature of the crime and to classify the kinds of crimes and the accuracy that they said was about 90 percent when it comes to predicting white-collar crime in any given area in manhattan of course the police are not using that right because again, it comes to that bias and the stereotypes that we have when it comes to financial crime versus street crime. So this is what we're saying is that we have these great algorithms that we could use, but are we bringing our own stereotypes and our own biases to the deployment and the development of this technology?
0: I love it. <laughs> it's good stuff. It's good stuff. What do you think that, that um, like in, your, in your role as, as advising, you know, what, what are the, the practical steps that that governments or, or cities or, or organizations can take today? Um, it, it, like, if we come down a little bit into the, the like, here's the, the steps that, that we should be taking. What Do you have any advice along those lines?
1: Well, I think uh, we've got to look at that, uh, the disparity between the global south and the global north. The global north pretty much... Uh, has a sense of what's happening. They're leading the way. They have the approaches, the interventions, the perspectives in place. I think we've got to really bring that question of ethics when it comes to design, uh, very, very important. We've got to look at AI governance and we've got to really look at what I call deliberative democracy and access and that intersection of data and democracy. Very critical because we don't want to use too much of it to reduce democracy, right? We want to use more of it to empower. And this whole concept that algorithms a neutral an objective, that's insufficient. We can't go with that yeah. anymore. So we've got to require those explanations, the justifications, and the contextual information that's critical. We must have systems of appeal for citizens, particularly if it is that we're going to use algorithmic decision-making, I think it's very critical. When we're looking at trade secret secrets, I think we've also got to look at the question of life and liberty attached to trade secrets. And I'm, I'm thinking that uh, question that the public has the right to know, particularly in criminal justice, is very important. Um, that whole question of open source is also very important there. And I think uh, when it comes to that whole question of you know, accelerating, um, you know, economies and adoption of AI. I think we have the strategies correct when it comes from that business perspective. I think from a humanistic perspective, we've got to look at how we're making decisions with um, artificial intelligence. And I keep saying, you know, we don't ever want to get to the point where we need to design algorithms to teach us how to be human
0: again. Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting twist. I didn't, I didn't see that coming.
1: <laughs> <laughs> we don't want to get there, right? We don't want to get there. So we don't ever want to lose what it means to be human. So we want to augment the intelligence. We want to have that level of collective intelligence. We also want to have that question of diverse intelligences, right? Uh, There are many uh, different, uh, you know, intelligences out there. So it's it's really about making this inclusive, making sure that the access is there. And my thing is about let's empower them because we know what this world is like. Right. So history teaches us what, the things that we missed that weren't so right. So now that we get an opportunity to create this whole new digital world, I'm just trying to say, let, let's just use our imagination to create the best that we can create. And just don't bring all of the the old stuff in there because we don't need that. We've seen how that works against us. As a society, as a people, as a world, as humanity. Yeah, it's
0: almost—it's almost like we, we we keep building these these better and better technologies, whether it's you know weapons or gun like weapons and guns or, or cars or or agriculture or or, or AI, yeah, but then we're still dragging along our 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 human selves, you know, that have evolved a long time ago, and it's 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 like it's interesting because it. it, it sometimes i think like the technology is advancing faster than we are right and we're we're trying to catch up and our laws are not the same as our laws are not fair or ethical necessarily it's sort of the the outer bounds of what's acceptable and then there's all this space in between i i I was as you were talking about you know you know what we should strive for I, i was getting this this sense of sort of losing independence as an individual right like i think. We all like to think of ourselves as sort of individually control of our, in control of our fate. That's you know, probably not as true as it seems, uh, you know, especially when AI can accurately predict the things that we'll do in the future. Uh, well, definitely,
1: but- you've, you've got to look at, at your, your digital profile, your digital identity. These things are, are concepts that people are not thinking yeah. about. So this is why I'm saying, you know, we, we have got to even look at it from early education. And that whole question of ethics when it comes to ethical design of the AI systems and products that are out there are bringing what we call a justice oriented approach to design as well. And just understanding those hidden effects of algorithms, yeah. you know, we, we've got to just keep that to the fore when we're, we're designing, where we're in the classroom space, where we're teaching and we're training. We've, we've really got to look at that because it's so important. It's so important because I think the devastation that we can do with AI is, is much more powerful than what we were able to do in the past. So if you wanna use AI to really replicate things like racial disparities and economic disparities and re-victimization and marginalization and all the systemic discrimination and different levels of discrimination that have brought us where we are, I think we're wasting that technology because we can do so much more with it.
0: Yeah, we can use it to, to get past those things in a way that, that wasn't easily possible. Um, exactly. But, but the challenge though, and I, I know you've been saying this, the challenge is that, that in the past, those things, you know, were individually perpetrated, uh, even if they were sort of society, societal, you know, acceptance and, and norms, but they were, they were always individuals making this, those, like perpetrating those things. And, and now with AI, and as we move to, to more compute and database society, um, they become systemic. Right, and I think that transition from, you know, individuals taking action to a systemic automated process is where where the opportunity and the danger lies, right? It it all it all sits on how well that automation happens. Um, you're you're I, th- I guess what I'm really driving at is you're you're centralizing a distributed process, yeah. and, and that's that's where the opportunity and the risk becomes uh, really really salient, right? Because because before it took a million or a hundred million people together behaving badly to, to make something right. for, for, you know, discrimination or for bad decisions at a society level to happen. And now it takes one person or one system. Um,
1: so what we've got to do, we've got to digitize that old social contract and we've got to bring it into to 2020 and beyond, because I think the social contract that we had, that, that you know, it, it's been, it's fundamental the principles are still very strong, but we've got to just bring a digital perspective to that because what we're creating here, we're shifting the goalposts when it comes to, to civil rights. When you compare that or you put that within the context of your digital profile and the kinds of, of relationships we're having with technology, you know, we, we've got to look at that. And, and you know, what happens is, is most times, you know, people are not paying attention to the things that they need to pay attention to because one, life happens so quickly. And two, there's that whole fear when it comes to technology, because there is math, you know, and, and, and there's these numbers and these algorithms, what are these things? And, and people somehow don't believe that their mind uh, can deal with all of that and what's happening in their daily lives. So I guess people want that, uh, the comfort, that knowing that somehow the people who are, who are designing this technology really have our, our best interests at heart. And do we? Does the AI community have the best interests of humanity at heart? And we, we've got to ask that because I think it's, it's, a, it's a great responsibility that has been placed on the shoulders of the AI fraternity. Because what I think we're not realizing is that how many people simply just believe. But the individuals who are designing and developing and deploying AI really has society's best interest at heart.
0: Yeah, I think that that says it well. So uh, related to that, um, and then maybe we'll, we'll we'll wrap it up after this. Is um, China has this this social credit concept? Um, you're familiar right. with that, and
1: <laughs> yes, very. And
0: that's, and that's fascinating, right? Because it it takes everything that you've talked about and um and it makes it real, right? it's um i mean it-,
1: it makes it real to the point where it's unreal okay yeah, tell
0: me your thoughts. because I'm i think hear-
1: what it lacks there is, is diversity it lacks that question of diversity and individuality so maybe in a space like china diversity and individuality uh may not be the top listing on the check box right <laughs> uh i think I think, you know, uh they're looking of course at, at speed, at expediency, uh, they're looking at social regulation. Uh I mean using people's uh or creating uh using data points to regulate people's behavior or whether or not you give someone a, a passport to access the rest of the world. Those things are questionable, right? I, I think uh the beauty of of, of of the American experience would be that uh, it's diverse, right? I mean I have I don't know, I
0: have mixed feelings. And uh, this is probably, you know, uh, this is probably said from a a place of not considering all the 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 implications. But like, Uh uh, you know, when I when I want to hire a plumber, or when I want to go, you know, you know, get a new, um, I don't know, like a a new car, I look online, and I look at the reviews of the, the person who was selling it to me, and I make those decisions based on reviews. And it's hard for me to imagine a time, only like five or 10 or 15 years ago, where like, we had to make all these decisions without reviews. Right. And we didn't know if we were dealing with a person oh. or somebody who was going to give me a good customer service or a good product. And now reviews are so central to everything I do. And, and, it, and to me, this, this social credit is like taking that review concept from a business and applying it to a person. And so on a, on a personal level, like I, I do kind of like this idea of, of, of knowing when I interact with people in society, you know, just just like if I was interacting with them financially, having financial credit, like knowing that these people are, are honest or, or caring or good. Um, and and that, I know that I know that's ignoring all the, the risk.
1: And let me play devil's advocate. The, the reviews are good. You know, we read the reviews on Amazon before we buy the product. We want the reviews for the hotel on booking.com. We want all the reviews, you know, wherever we go. But let's play devil's advocate. When it comes to human beings, sometimes we get a review on someone and then we meet the person and it throws the review off, right? It throws the review off. For those people who like to do online dating, (laughs) uh, they would say these people have great reviews. but when you meet the great yeah. reviews in person, it's a great, right? You're going to get binned. So- It'll be like,
0: hey, you're, you're, you're only like moderately trustworthy. Therefore, you can only date people who are also moderately right. trustworthy. And you're going to be like.
1: And some of the people who are coming with a great social credit, you may not want to love that person. They may have a, a fantastic social credit, but on an emotional level, you may feel nothing for that person. And that's what I'm saying. Don't let algorithms have to teach us how to be human again. We've got to augment that intelligence. We've got to keep what is intrinsically ours. There is nothing that exists to me anywhere like what it means to be human, what it means to touch and to feel and to cry, empathy, to care, to look at your children smile, you know, to tuck your child in at night. And or to see you to, to go to your daughter's or your son's graduation. These are things algorithms can't do that for us. You know that.
0: Right? You know I, I completely agree, and I love your passion. I would only add though that my son would probably be super super excited if AI would tuck him in every night. But
1: <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, on his phone. But there's but, but when I love he gets, passion, when I he agree. falls and he gets a little bruise, he wants daddy. Absolutely. And listen to me, unless. You know, I mean, really, I think he wants his daddy. I'm, I'm, I don't I'm think just, he's gonna replace. Kind of I don't think he's gonna replace you with a, uh, you know, an AI. Uh, system I'm just, ever. I'm just mostly
0: joking. I, I think he probably would for at least a few weeks, and then he'd kind of like realize. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so I think until AI can probably reproduce what you feel when you get a human hug, yeah. I don't think we're ever gonna get yeah. there. But I think it's important. Right. But I think that that program in China can probably only work in China, because one the thing that threw me off of it is that if you're going to use these uh, credit, uh, social credit to deny someone a passport. So it means that you're going to stay in your country forever. You can't leave. Come on, man. I mean, that's not. What hey, we are I, I, so I didn't
0: know they were doing that. And I, I admit, I don't know the implications yeah. of the program, but mm-hmm. that, that is pretty uh... Well, it's to,
1: it's to design what they call the best citizen and the best citizen would have all the check boxes, right? You're not late on your loans. You're paying all your credit card. You don't owe anybody any money. Your mortgage is paid up. You've never jaywalked, right? I mean, who does that? I mean, you know, who does that? And those are the people. So you're creating almost these unreal people. And you're saying that, but when these unreal people go into, so one of these unreal people come to New York city. Times Square, where you've got to do a bit of jaywalking, <laughs> what happens to
0: them? yeah <laughs> right
1: they're not going to be able to even experience the real world because you're creating something that's unreal, yeah, you know, so expediency it sounds good, but I think you know if you're not humans are not product
0: I, I experienced that even in Atlanta, yeah. like like my parents, my parents right. being from Brooklyn, they always told me just walk wherever you want, whenever you want, and don't worry about the lights and and I'm just <laughs> like, you know. <laughs>
1: You know, Working. so so we've got. This is where I'm saying we've got to regulate things, right? And we've got to just don't lose human intelligence and and don't use lose emotional intelligence
0: too. Absolutely. To, to
1: machines. Yeah,
0: I, I love the message, and I and I and I think I think that you're you're well positioned to, to 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 drive this. And I I just I'm I'm really gonna be curious to see what what roles and titles emerge over the next few years in this space. Um,
1: And I think I've already done that with AI criminologists, and now I've really launched this initiative called Urban AI, where I'm really going to take AI into the communities and ensure that the people who are living in the communities have access to AI to design the kind of solutions that are necessary. Because much of what's happening now is where we call the uh, smart cities uh, sort of formula. And it's looking at not only things like urban agriculture, looking at transport, communication, uh, technology access, but you're also looking at urban intelligence, urban innovation, urban, uh, you know, uh, tech incubators and looking at urban development through the eyes of AI. So I'm really passionate about urban AI because I think much of it deals with public safety, um, safety in general and security and if you want a safe city, you've got to include uh, criminal justice in there. And that's where that fusion of criminal justice and AI and really getting people to wake up to this concept of urban AI to help us redesign the spaces that we're living in.
0: Well, Renee, I, I want to end it at that because I think that was that was excellent. And uh, do you want to do you want to get a last word in? say anything else?
1: I think I did. So I think it's up to you. And I just want to say thank you so much. It's been such an engaging and enlightening conversation and your passion is always there. And I think we, we have the passion to do what's necessary. And I think we just got to keep our heart in the right place.
0: And that's a wrap. Thanks for sticking around to the end. If you liked us, leave us a five-star review, give us a written review. It helps us to pop up on search engines so that more people can find us, share us with your friends. And uh, until next time, take care.